Neil, it's a pleasure to have you on our stage here at Startwell. Uh, thank you for joining me here today. Uh, I know that it's interesting times that uh, kind of bring this conversation to stage. And I think it's one, one way to put it, yeah. Right. Uh, I feel like it's a timely um, moment for us to look at the co working kind of you know, economy, uh, the businesses that are our customers and suppliers and partners, um, and, uh, and look to a future culture of collaboration amongst that whole ecosystem. And in order to do that, I think we need to address uh, where there's opportunities and where we also have been failing uh, in, in recent years uh, to address kind of needs of those uh, people that fit into our network. So to that end, I hope this conversation is uh, going to be as much fun for you as it is for me. I have no doubt. And I'm sure <laughs> that the audience will, will enjoy hearing from both of us on this. Um, so welcome, Neil. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Uh, for our audience that is unfamiliar with the Mark uh, Project Spaces in Toronto, let's dive into a little bit of history. Sure. So uh, tell me, I guess, about your uh, co-founder story, mm -hmm. how you met your co-founder, uh, who's not with us today, and um, Jeffrey, and uh, I guess how you guys got started on the whole uh, mission and, and where co-working suddenly landed either in your lap or uh, where you figured out a course of action sure. towards it. It's a, it's a bit of a windy tale. Okay. Um, I'll, uh, I can be very long-winded with this. Maybe I'll try not to be, but we'll <laughs> see what happens. So, uh, so Jeff Howard is my co-founder, and we met uh, at Queen's University okay. in, um, I think it would have been about 2007. Um, at, uh, out on campus at Queen's, all of the student services are run by, uh, managed entirely by students. Okay. So we met in an interview room where he was hiring me to be the events and marketing manager for a, uh, a, a on-campus like ticketing kiosk. Okay. It was like an events and ticket service. So we ran events, we sold tickets wow. uh, to concerts, we ran trips, all this type of stuff. And he was the head manager of this service. Okay. And so he met me in an interview room. And uh, he, we had never met before that moment. And I'm, I'm told that after I left the room, the advisor who was accompanying him uh, for the interview said that I seemed like I was high risk, high reward. Oh my God, <laughs> wow. Which uh, I feel like I'll always remember that. But yeah, so, so anyway, he ended up hiring me for that role and that's kind of how we met. And so we spent a year uh, running this student service together. We had a lot of fun doing it. We uh, you know, introduced all kinds of new revenue streams and really kind of got to you know, get our hands dirty with, with a business, um, which is kind of the whole point of having these student-run services on campus. They're one-year non-renewable contracts. Okay. So the next year, another student gets the chance to, to have this job. Hmm. And so at the end of that year, we, uh, you know, it was, we were heading into summertime and we didn't really have summer jobs and we just finished running a business together for a year. And so we thought, why don't we start a business together? That might be fun. Mm. Um, and so what we ended up doing, uh, which is maybe a whole long story under itself, but it was, we started a magazine. Okay. And it was called Connect Student Magazine. And uh, effectively we were publishing work from eventually Canadian university students. It started with just students at Queens. Mm. Um, people could submit, uh, we called it like arts and ideas. So it was everything from you know, essays and opinions to photography, artwork kind of anything that like the campus paper maybe wouldn't publish. And when was uh, this? What year so, was this? So we put out our first issue uh, at the Queen's Sidewalk Sale in Frosh Week okay. in September 2009. Okay. Um, and yeah, so that was uh, a really interesting experience. No, I didn't know that much about publishing or anything right. like that. Right. Um, the business model was basically, you know, selling ads to the local businesses in Kingston yeah. uh, and then publishing this free magazine. That's, that's cool that you had a business model, though. I mean, like, I remember when I put my first publication together, it was called The Screaming Banana. Okay. And it was just <laughs> to poke fun at our uh, teachers 
uh, the faculty and some of the students <laughs> nice. in high school in Kenya, and it was like literally we just like made up stuff, and it was uh, you know really hard hitting journalism for like, <laughs> one interview in the whole edition, and the rest of it was just lies. Um, so that's nice. Like, yeah, it was ridiculous. But that was high school. You're, you were talking about universities. Yeah. So you got to be a little bit more uh, legitimate. Well, we had to eat and pay yeah. rent, so right. you know we and we got pretty good at this. Is you, you know you could say you, we sort of you know cut our teeth in terms of sales, right? And like just pounding the pavement, yeah. uh, talking to mom and pop shops, and and selling ads. And, and the way that it started to grow was we would we started expanding to the other kind of um, campus-focused towns. So we were at, at, uh, at Waterloo, we were in London, we were in Ottawa, mm -hmm. um, and then so we had put out I think three issues by that point. And we had ambition to be, you know, this coast-to-coast-to-coast -to -coast -to -coast campus magazine. Yeah. Uh, and so we started setting up, you know, distribution agreements with, I think we were almost up to 50 campuses. And this wow. is when we decided to move from Kingston to Toronto. Okay. Uh, to be near, you know, ad agencies. And we kind of had to try to make this jump from selling to local businesses in the university towns to selling to national brands so we could be right. this national publication. Uh, turns out we had no idea how to do any of that. Um, there were these funny stories about, you know, we would go to like Apple headquarters <laughs> and just say, hey, uh, can we talk to somebody in marketing? We have this magazine. And they would say, well, uh, do you have an appointment, <laughs> first of all? Uh, no, we don't. Um, and, well, and also, you're, you're supposed to talk to our ad agency about that. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, well, who's that? They're like, well, we don't really just tell you that. You know, yeah. You're so, sort of supposed Someone to know that. Street. And they're like, and also, uh, you know, our budgets for print were set a year ago. And we're like, oh, but we're going to print in two weeks. And so it just became this time of trying to transition, and yeah. we just really had no idea what we were doing. But in the background of that, um, Jeff was living in a townhouse at King and Bathurst. Okay. And we were working out of the living room, and that was boring and lonely. And we co-working was, I'll say, virtually non-existent in Toronto at the time. I think there might have yeah. been a couple at, uh, back then, but... Um, we're talking 2000... This would have been 2011 11? now. Uh, CSI was de yeah. definitely been around Center for, for, for a while. Innovation. Yeah. Um, and I think there were a couple others that I think have closed since then. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we sometimes I joke like, well, we might have just joined a co-working space if you know if we found one. That yeah, we yeah. Liked. We had to build one. Right? Uh, but I had to build one. Uh, I didn't necessarily know that I was doing that at the yeah. time. But yeah, so we you know real estate's obviously very expensive in Toronto, and we looked around for office space. Ended up finding this this space that uh, seems tiny now, but it was huge at the time. It was 1,200 square feet okay. um, in this old brick and beam building at the corner of King and Bathurst, right across the street from where we were working out of. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of fell in love with this, you know, really unique old space. Right. Um, signed the lease kind of right away, and then we're like, "Holy crap! How are we going to pay for this?" Uh, and luckily, we had some other friends, mostly friends from school, yeah. uh, that were also starting companies. We had um, some tech startup guys, but also there was video production, some digital marketers. Uh, and it was, it, we, we didn't necessarily intend to start a, an ongoing co-working business. It was right. just, hey, if you guys take a couple desks, you take a couple right. desks. We can all make it work together. We can share this space, and yeah. we can all you know, not have to work at home. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's kind of what gave birth to it in, in August 2011 at, uh, at the corner of King and Bathurst. Yeah. Right around the corner from here. Yeah. Wow, it's been 10 years, 11 years. How many years? It's, it'll be... I don't even know what nine days. So it was nine years this past <laughs> August, yeah. Nine years, man. Which is crazy to think. That is crazy to think, absolutely. It's such a long time. And you've seen this neighborhood change so much because um, I guess maybe paint that picture a little bit because I want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about the kind of contextualization from a pedestrian standpoint of the co-working experience, so like mm -hmm. why it's important to the street kind of thing. 
Uh, but before that, I think it'd be worth hearing your take on the King of Bathurst neighborhood nine years ago to today. What's changed? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's changed in so many ways. So I, I live in Liberty Village. So yeah. I have about a 10 or 12 minute uh, on foot commute. Right. Um, I probably pass 20 condo buildings that didn't exist <laughs> when we moved here. Yeah. Like right at the corner of uh, East Liberty and Strawn where I live. I think there's like six buildings going up there right now alone. Yeah. Um, you know, I not being from Toronto initially, like uh, not originally from here, um, but from what I understand, you know, the King West neighborhood, you know, there was a time when you wouldn't go west of Spadina. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, this was like no man's land. Yeah, you know, it so, was a lovely neighborhood, but it didn't have like retail gravitas. There wasn't necessarily right. like restaurants and bars and yeah, yeah. King West wasn't King West. Right. right? It was just yeah. near Queen West, and that was really the place. Yeah. So I mean, you know, by the time I came here in, in 2011, I think it, it had be started becoming King West. Like it was already a cool. It was becoming a cool neighborhood. A lot yeah. of like the bars and restaurants and stuff. Um, but yeah, it's just been. It's, it's just been crazy to see. I mean, the whole, we've seen even just the block that we're on at King and Bathurst, right? Almost like a full rotation in terms of the businesses that are there. Right, um, right. Yeah. Um, so you guys started with the 1,200 square feet in that building, and then you grew in that building, right? Um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about that embrace of what you discovered as a business model for yourselves. Sure, um, yeah how you became co-working operators. Yeah, so we, uh, we had this 1,200 square foot space and, and um, we had maybe something like 20 or 30 people, mostly people we knew personally that were our friends that were kind of sharing the space with us. Mm -hmm. um, the magazine, which was the spark, you know, that brought us there in the first place, um, was starting to struggle a little bit. As I mentioned, we, we were kind of struggling with this idea of become, you know, jumping to become more of a national publication. We shifted as a way to save money, to shifted to being online. Printing is very expensive. Um, and it had sort of, sort of a, a short life as just a digital magazine. Generating revenue that way was really tough. And it got to the point where we were like, we might have to actually give up the office. We can't really justify having it anymore wow. for the magazine. Yeah, this is a um, make or break moment. But yeah, but then we had all these people that were like, well, don't give, you know, like, don't give up the lease. Like, we'll keep paying and maybe we can find some more people. And, you know, we were. D definitely really enjoying it by mm -hmm. that point. Like having this place and all these people was like, I just love being around that, like right. that kind of energy, right? Everybody's working on their own stuff. Everybody's working really, really hard, but everyone's also really kind of tightly knit and they're having fun doing yeah. it and all this stuff. And it's kind of contagious, right? So right. I was like, okay, well, let's, uh, let's see where we can take this shared space idea. And so um, by that point, I think we'd actually taken the next unit over. So we were maybe you know 2,900 square feet or something. Um, but it was right around this time that the, the guy who owned the building at yeah. the time uh, told us uh, he, <laughs> I don't want to like throw him under the bus. Anyway, he, he hated us, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well put, well phrased. Um, I'll say love and hate, but anyway, he, he, uh, he at one point came up and he was like, you know what guys, I'm selling this building to condo developers. They're going to tear it down. You're going to be out on the street. Wow. And, uh, and so we we're like, okay, well, this is our livelihood now. So we're panicking. Right. So we start looking for another location. Mm -hmm. and, the lo and sometimes people ask why our, our two locations, which I haven't got to yet in the story, but why, why right. they're so close together. And, and really the reason was we wanted to find a place that was close enough yeah, as your that in a pinch, if yeah. we had to close down suddenly, 
we could move there quickly and pr hopefully our members would come with us because it's you know right. close enough in the neighborhood. Right. Um, and so we very, very quickly found this space at 20 Camden Street, which is a little bit north, closer to Queen and Spadina. Um, and it was like, signed the lease on, I think, February 15th, opened March 1st. Mm -hmm. Like it was just- Right away, yeah. Total whirlwind, you know, absolutely no sleep yeah. um, kind of thing. And then the building did sell at King and Bathurst. Okay. But nothing happened. You know, we were, so longer story there, but it's a heritage property. It will someday be redeveloped, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's a very long horizon for that. Right, so, right. Uh, and we kind of learned that as we went along. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we didn't get kicked out there. So yeah. we're like, okay, well, there's more space. So as time went on, we grew to, I think, about 5,000 square feet. And then a few years ago, uh, took the rest of the floor. So there were about 10,000 square feet now. Mm -hmm. It's the whole, whole top floor. Um, and so, yeah, now we have 10,000 square feet there, 8,000 over at 20 Camden Street. Okay. Um, and yeah, the spaces just kind of operate in tandem. Our members kind of have access to both of them. They have very different vibes. I yeah. think you've been to both of them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, which is kind of cool because they, they sort of attract different uh, types of people or different types of businesses. Sure. Um, but then all those people get to kind of co-mingle co as well. Describe the building for me at King and Bathurst. You said it's heritage. Yeah. It's, a, it's a demo site that's uh, been played. <coughs> Excuse me. So aesthetically and otherwise, like how, how has so it... So uh... it's, uh, I always say they're not making buildings like this anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, so it was built in 1900. Okay. It was originally the Canada Biscuit Company factory. Uh, and then as time went on and the area became sort of like the garment, um, manuf uh, garment manufacturing was happening yeah. as it became sort of the fashion district. Um, so actually when we were sort of a tangent story, while we were doing some of our expansion, we would actually find spools of fabric like up in the rafters, wow. like in between the beams. Um, Amazing. Uh, yeah, so anyway, building's got a ton of history. Yeah. Very, very old. Um, and, you know, it's got uh, a ton of character, let's right. say. Right. Um, which is a really nice way of saying it's four flights of stairs, creaky floors, you know, the odd leak here and there. Sure. Um, but, you know, for the people who work there, they love it. I mean, it's, 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 there's nothing like it, really. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very unique. Um, you could say, a lot of people say it has sort of like a New York loft type of vibe. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a, we're, we're the first to say it's not for everyone. It tends to attract like a really kind of creatively minded people. So we have a lot of like digital markers, marketers there, um, some filmmakers, photographers, um, just because it's, it's a very cool, unique kind of space. Yeah, the aesthetics are inspiring to creatives. Um, also seeking, I think, that, and, and this might be a, cultural, a tangent to talk about culture now, but I feel like a big part of co-working is about community, is about being together. Like you were mm -hmm. saying, the early days was, um, was not about a business model uh, to, uh, to bring people together, but as people came together, uh, especially from Creative Pursuits, I think that seemed like a natural fit, mm -hmm. right? Um, so probably something embedded in the DNA of project spaces, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, certainly the aesthetic of kind of these spaces that have the authenticity of a story that goes back a hundred years. Uh, I think in a modern, you know, technological society, we all find that those aesthetics ground us. And mm -hmm. uh, if you're at the forefront of technology, you guys have members who are startups and software coders and stuff as well, right? Yeah. Um, I think that that plays in a little bit. Um, so the ardors of climbing, you know, four stairs, um, this is probably some people's workout and something. Yeah. They... I mean, you know, it's all about the positive spin, right? You know, there's yeah. no charge for the extra workout in the morning. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah. And then, so uh, paint the picture of the kind of like culture at Camden Street, your second Sure, location. so um, the, our Camden Street space, is, is, I'll say it's similar in lots and lots of ways. Hopefully mm -hmm. we can cut this with some visuals so people can yeah, you know what sure. I'm talking about, but sure. um, still very, very open concept, um, but it's a much more modern building. So you don't get right. sort of like the high ceilings and exposed brick and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the building was totally redone uh, about 20 years ago. It's in like beautiful shape. We have the top two floors there. So one floor is kind of our, I'll uh, say event space, lounge, meeting rooms, kitchen, uh, reception, and then all of our permanent desks are upstairs. So it's a bit of a different layout, whereas at King West we're kind of spread over, over one floor. Right. Um, and yeah, it, uh, it attracts people that are looking for maybe something a little bit more polished and professional. If you're a very yeah. client focused, like uh, if you meet with a lot of clients, you don't necessarily want them to have to climb four flights of stairs. Right, right. right. So, the, uh, so Camden Street, actually funny what happens is often people will have their desk at King West because they like the vibe there, yep. but they'll meet their clients over at Camden Street because oh, it's a little more accessible and, sure. and whatever. Um, yeah, different vibes, similar, you know, they have their unique elements. But I think this is also another interesting thing um, about aesthetics, about experience, and about um, really cultural re relevance of kind of co-working spaces that um, have retail entrances is that mm -hmm. you're connected to the street you know people can hop in and hop out um, and at the same time that's all types of people that's your members that's their guests and it's cool mm -hmm. that you guys have two locations in a similar neighborhood um, for that fact right I'm sure people feel it's easy to think of going to the second location for about an hour right. or two yeah it's rare that I would walk between the two of them and not pass someone who's on their way to one or the other you know and that's about community as well, right? It's like being in this neighborhood now for, for a decade, um, seeing the change in the neighborhood, and uh, where I was trying to lead you a little bit, and I'll just color the story from my own angle, is um, you know this neighborhood, for anyone watching that's not from Toronto or doesn't know it particularly, is very interesting because, as Neil mentioned, of course, you know there is this like history in the textiles industry, especially as we go a block over or a big block over a couple blocks, I don't know, mm -hmm. to Spadina, which you mentioned, uh, where actually I was a member at the Center for Social Innovation back in 2006 uh, and seven uh, was when I joined. Okay. Um, what Christmas were you working time. on when you were there? Oh my God, what wasn't I working on? <laughs> uh, back then, I was a man of many brands. Uh, okay. So I actually had, uh, I founded a record label called Indian Electronica. I founded that back in 2003. And it was kind of like maybe the, one of the first marks in the world in, uh, in, in media that covered uh, an emerging South Asian diasporic kind of sentiment in music. Wow. Cool. Um, yeah, so quickly the record label grew. We had artists like Telvin Singh uh, who worked with Bjork um, you know, on that label, all sorts of talent from around the world. And uh, so Indian Electronica was actually you know, on the list of tenants in the entrance to the Roberts, Robertson building, you know, 215 Spadina, um, where oh, the golf yeah, course yeah, is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So that was the building that I moved into, uh, the first Center for Social Innovation building right. on the yeah. fourth floor uh, when the CSI itself was two years into its story and was just growing to its second floor in the building. So it wow. started with a really campy kind of 2,000 square foot space or 1,500 square foot space in the like kind of back of the first floor with no real bright windows. Um, it was a real kind of like um, a dynamic space for people in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. um, that was its hook. And then 
as they grew in a couple of years to take on the fourth floor of that building, uh, it was motivated by uh, the Zaidler family buying that building. Okay. So that's an architecture family in Toronto, or at least um, uh, Mr. Zaidler Sr. Uh, is a known architect who built many big projects in the city. And um, this is weird connections. I'd interviewed him on camera for the Canadian Heritage Project in conjunction with the Design Exchange in like when I moved here from New York in 2005. Everything's connected. I know, it is, it, it is. At least in Toronto, and these are also connections yeah. that we, I think are, you know, fast forwarding to COVID, I think it's, um, it's important more than ever before to maintain these and like, you know, strengthen relationships in this time. Because uh, we kind of forget when, you're, when business is good and everyone's busy, it's so hard to um, find the time, make the time to kind of have conversations like this. Yeah. You know? So I'm thankful for that in this time, at least, that we're sitting here together having this conversation. Um, but anyway, that time was very interesting because Toronto did feel very small. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of the community of people that were like creating things, creating new brands, uh, the coffee shop explosion hadn't happened yet, right? Dark Horse, which was the ground floor tenant, moved in in 2007 of that building, and that was their first location or second location. Okay. Um, there were no independent espresso bars, really. To I remember speak how popular uh, Jimmy's Coffee on right. Portland was. Back yeah, then. I mean, it's still it's still so popular that there's literally another one across the street. Right, right. Um, but yeah, I remember they had opened. I don't know exactly when, but shortly before we had come here, and yeah. it was like, Just if you're in King West, it. you get your coffee at Jimmy's. Jimmy's, yeah. and it was the yellow lid. Everyone yeah. knew that yellow <laughs> lid. Um, so Toronto at that time was just so emergent, I think, for so many reasons. But yeah, mm -hmm. the Zadler family. Um, Essentially, I think Margie Zadler bought that building and bought the Gladstone Hotel and was responsible for turning the Gladstone around. And uh, that became, of course, this one of two boutique hotels in the downtown core, the Drake mm -hmm. and the Gladstone. And I remember, I mean, now, okay, I'm playing old man here, but at that time, um, you know, paint, painting the picture for the audience that may not be in, in the city, it was really interesting because Starbucks was new. Starbucks was new in Canada. It's crazy to think, like just over a decade ago, um, and now they're pulling back. I don't know if you heard this announcement, like 200 stores across Canada are closing. Oh, really? Okay. Um, so I, I think there's a kind of cultural resurgence in a way that's kind of happening. But anyway, going back to those days, um, yes, when the Center for Social Innovation was new, uh, Starbucks had just opened their first location on, uh, in Queen West, and uh, Parkdale was a, a rough and tumble neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It still in some ways is. Uh, but people threw bricks in the window, you know, and this happened multiple times. They kept breaking it and saying, do not come here. We don't right. want you here. Uh, and that happened even to the Drake Hotel. And the Gladstone kept its kind of aesthetics to, the, to be accessible to anybody. Uh, and kept that bar that used to be there when they renovated the building. And mm -hmm. so, anyway, so the Zadler family kind of like new architecture and respected the heritage uh, of these brick and beam buildings that were being turned into condos. And that started around that time that you guys founded yeah. yourselves, right? Um, so it's really interesting to paint the picture of the evolution of this neighborhood in the last decade, because I think it's remained a pedestrian friendly neighborhood. And we have a lot of like the retail landscape pre-COVID was so bustling that, you know, quality of life for all of our members, you know, here at Startwell and, and uh, you know, just a few blocks away at Project mm -hmm. Spaces. I think that's a big thing that people like is like, the neighborhood provides them entertainment in the evening, lunch at, in the middle of the day, and, uh, and a lot of people 
uh, you know, live in the neighborhood as well. Well, and now we're a few years into that um, King Street pilot project, right, with the TTC, right. and um, I feel like that really kind of changed, as you're saying, making being sort of a pedestrian friendly. Um, you don't see as, nearly as many cars. King Street is not nearly right. as clogged as it as it once was. And it's interesting because, of course, in the last few months, as construction projects have been accelerated by the city, because there isn't as many cars due to you know the pandemic. Um, there's all that construction that's happening um, to the roads, but uh, so that's also had an effect on slowing traffic. But um, but also there's so much densification happening in this neighborhood that I think we sit on a precipice of a, of a great opportunity. Um, who knows how the municipality is going to work with this? Uh, you know, I guess the protection of the retail streetscape mm -hmm. coming out of COVID. But the way I look at it, with an increased densification in the neighborhood and a reduction that's forced of, of vehicle traffic or cars, motor vehicle traffic on King Street um, with the, what would you call it? I forget what they call it. But essentially, they put all the pylons in and turn two lanes into one, right? And you can only go one block at a time before you have to turn right yeah. or left. Yeah, exactly. Which worked really well in Manhattan. And they did that in mm -hmm. Manhattan about a decade ago, and, and that worked really well. Um, yeah, I'm hopeful that like we have a, a, a race towards a more pedestrian-focused experience in this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think it would benefit all of our members because that's something that everybody loves. And it's really interesting. Sure. Like, even when we've had members driving in from like Markham every day or like the outer suburbs to come to work at Startwell uh, because their team is based here, we find that like they are so thankful that we're not actually in the core core. Like, right. So they tell their family every day, yeah, I'm going into Toronto, I'm going downtown. Um, but for them, they're like, phew, at least it's not the downtown core. You know, it's the yeah. downtown, it's next to the core. So they could jump on a streetcar and in 10 minutes be mm -hmm. in an office for a meeting uh, in, in Bay Street. But when they get back here, it's like they can breathe, you know? Um, yeah, totally. So I think people like that. So co-working has changed as well in the last decade. Um, you know, you guys grew to two, two locations and then uh, you've seen, you know, so many different brands come up. Um, what are some interesting names in the game that you've seen uh, in Toronto, from outside or from within? Um, well, I just had a lovely tour of this place. <laughs> so I'm a big fan. Thank uh, you. This is a great, great spot here. Thanks very much. Um, we actually became uh, pretty good friends with um, Rachel. She's the founder of Make Lemonade. So it's, ah. uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever chatted with her, but um, big fan of what, what she does. She's really, really great at kind of building... Uh, a community and, and, and a vibe and this is um, a female focused co-working yeah, space. Yeah. Okay. Opened a few two or three years ago at I think now. Right. Right. Um, so they've been interesting. I mean there's so many um, when we, like when we started there were other than some kind of longtime players like say CSI. Yeah. It, you know, it was really us at, le at least you know in this area. Sure. Um, sure. and so that kind of meant like you didn't really have to think too much about who you were ideal for. Ah, yes. Right, because if you were nearby in the area and you needed to get out of your house or you needed affordable office space or whatever the use case was for right. you, right. you would probably find us. Right, um, but as the landscape has changed and there's so many spaces that cater specifically to specific people, as time goes on, you need to really, or at least we've had to kind of go through this exercise of really nailing down like who is project spaces for, right? Mm -hmm. Because now there's so many options. Like I think just even you know within walking distance of where we're sitting right now, you know, right. there's probably ten different options. You know, right. some cater to very specific audiences. Some are, are you know more general, like say the WeWorks, etc. Sure. sure. Um, 
So, I mean, there's, yeah, so, so many different ones. Some of them will be, uh, you know, associated with a, a brand or a company. You know, there was, I remember, uh, uh, what's the bank, ING Direct had a yeah. co-working space on Young Street at one point. I actually, I was one of the first people to test that place out. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I spent like a week there and then I just <laughs> couldn't hack it anymore. The location was wrong for me. That was right. the main thing. It was around the corner from my house. Oh, yeah, I okay. used to live Are you by, still there? In, no, now we live up at uh, at St. Clair, so I'm north of here. Okay. So I always stay just, I go north-south every day on the western part of Toronto uh, and avoid all the traffic. Yeah. But I used to, yeah, have a, a much more pedestrian-focused lifestyle and, uh, you know, didn't own any cars. Uh, my At some point, you know, my, my guilty purchase was a Vespa, and, okay. and that's how I got around, you know, the, the larger distances. But otherwise, I had a couple bikes, and, you know, I was on foot. And... I used to live right by the St. Lawrence Market because I really liked being in the, you know, the beginnings of the city, mm -hmm. um, That's aesthetically. Nice yeah. So I, I lived at Jarvis and Adelaide, and then I'd walk over uh, this way to work at the Center for Social Innovation every day. Um, but yeah, so you're right. There, there has been an emergence of so many different operators yeah. in this. Yeah. Space. So some, yeah, like I was saying, you know, associated with say a brand or sometimes you'll have, say, a startup that just has an abundance of space, and so you'll see them kind of launch a co-working space. Right that maybe fizzles out a little while later when they realize they want to use the space or you know, can't afford it anymore or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, we definitely pride ourselves on being, you know, this is what we do. You know, we're not a something else slash co-working space. Right. We may have started that way, yeah. magazine office slash co-working space. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's our specialty at this point. It's really interesting because I think, um, and I'm sure that you guys have heard this story, but it's something that we hear time and time again from um, particularly independence, and I think it might be worth drawing this line um, to just explain uh, to anyone watching that, I guess let's talk a little bit about Project Space's plans um, mm. and the type, of, you know, if you are Project Space's, uh, paint the picture of who you think fits the, sure. uh, the working lifestyle of your culture. Yeah, so I would say, you know, if you're someone who, so the vast majority of our community at Project yep. Space's, um, which I think fundamentally as a starting point makes us a little bit different is that we're primarily home to uh, what I'll call one person companies. Right. <laughs> right. So um, Solo calling them a company is a, you know, being tongue in cheek a little bit. It's a, it's a freelancers, a lot of just remote workers, yeah. um, solo founders, some smaller teams. Um, and with some exception, we do have a few, a few larger teams, but so it's, it's, it's pe people who could be working at home. They don't necessarily have to come into the space because they need to work with a team there. Okay. So they could be working at home, um, but they've chosen not to because working from home sucks, as we say all <laughs> the time. Hashtag. <laughs> Hashtag working from home sucks. So, um, so they end up at the space, yeah. right? So what that means, it, it sort of creates this environment where the, the kind of like community and social element is actually very important for these yeah. people. Um, you know, I've been through other spaces where it, it, they're say mostly home to large companies or they're satellite. Uh, teams for Fortune 500 companies or whatever. Very, very different vibe there. Mm. I've even seen when we've, on, on I'll say rare occasion, had a, say, a 30 or 40 person company, it, it starts to change the dynamic in the space, right? Because they're kind of their own enclosed environment and, you know, they already kind of have their own community. Mm -hmm. and it starts to kind of take away from, you know, it starts to feel like their office. And so we've really focused in now on, you know, where we are best for, you know, one and two person companies, often early stage, not always. Um, who kind of just want to be around other like-minded people 
Um, our spaces are very, very open concepts. We don't actually offer any like fully private offices. We do what we call flex memberships. I can tease that out a little bit because we've been trying some new stuff there. Um, and then you know permanent desks for people who you know say have monitors need something a little bit more full time. Um, but yeah, they're very you know we 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 say we have a lot uh, less walls, not more walls. Yeah. Um, which is even just to kind of our origin story, the way we grew is we would just, you know, take the next unit and knock the wall down. Yeah. We literally, you know, get a case of beer and ask our members to come hang out for the night with some sledgehammers and just <laughs> knock a wall down. So yeah, we're not, we're not big on putting up walls, uh, we like to say. <laughs> I like that. But, uh, but yeah, so it, you know, results in a space that's very, very open, makes it very, very easy to meet the people around you, which is, yeah. I think, a huge reason um, why the people are there. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing because, of course, we have to talk about this current context of the pandemic. And, like, I feel like, you know, kind of March, April, May 2020, you saw a lot of articles being published um, in everything from, you know, entrepreneurial focused magazines uh, down to, uh, shall we say, link bait, you know, bloggy websites. Yeah. Um, and in between, which includes, you know, even television. A lot of reports were filed by journalists that kind of were talking about the future of work. Um, and it was all fear-based. And it was all about, let's put up more walls. Mm -hmm. You can look through them. There'll be plexiglass. But let's hide everyone from each other in whatever way we can, isolate them into their own bubbles so that uh, you know, contagions of all sorts could be controlled. And then the question is called into like you know everyone's mind reading this stuff, especially us operators, I'm sure we share this, that, well, what's the point of working together? So it's kind of like, I felt like there was a lot of reportage on this kind of like knee-jerk reaction to um, fear uh, that yeah. said the workplace is dangerous, so let's hide each other in the workplace or let's escape the workplace and this fueled this kind of narrative of an approach to an entirely remote from home concept, um, which is totally disadvantageous from um, you know, team culture and from kind of inspiration mm -hmm. and spontaneous collaboration and all these things. So, you know, my lens on that is that open spaces are very, very important for people to be able to feel free together to interact. And yes, we all want to be respectful of each other's hygiene and health, um, but working in common space is great for so many reasons. Um, so how has that felt in the last few months you know, being primarily configured uh, for as open space, yeah. as desks, uh, in terms of some of the, maybe some anecdotes from uh, questions that people have asked you uh, mm -hmm. who are looking for membership or who are your current members trying to make sense of this craziness, um, to you guys even looking at maybe whether you should change things and, and rethink how you use space. Yeah, so it was kind of funny where um, overnight things that maybe would have been weaknesses for us at uh, one time became strength. So mm -hmm. we, we, we always say that companies kind of come, grow, and go. And the reason is that we don't, we don't offer sort of like fully private uh, suites. So let's say once you hire 10 people and um, you want to you know, have your own space to create your own culture and all that, you eventually go. Um, not having tiny enclosed offices right now is a huge advantage <laughs> um, because it means we can use all of our square footage, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is nice. Also. You know, we like to, uh, you know, paint a rosy picture of it, but climbing four flights of stairs isn't everybody's cup of tea. But what it means today is you don't have to take an elevator. Right, exactly. And we don't have any of those issues around density or having to stagger arrival or whatever. Right. So there's always a, you know, an optimistic a flip side. view, right? Yeah. 
Um, and, you know, and then in terms of what you're saying about, you know, what, I, I think that if, if, if someone's starting the conversation by asking like, what's better, work from home, work at a coffee shop, work in an office, it's kind of like you're asking the wrong question, I think kind of right off the bat. Right. The right question is, uh, is a personal one. So whether you're a business owner or an employee, you have a set of uh, deliverables, tasks, goals, whatever it's gonna be in your day or your week, mm. what is the approach for you that's gonna allow you to maximize your, you know, both your productivity, but also your, you know, your, your happiness and your overall you know, joy with whatever it is you're doing? Um, and what we're finding for most people is that's a mix of things. Right. So most people we're meeting today are, are people in the neighborhood that, uh, you know, they might have a decent work from home setup, but maybe they've got children or pets or they just don't have that much space and uh, getting to leave the house even say once or twice a week, um, it, you know, it m makes a world of difference to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. It's, it's all about, is that person, you know, performing at their peak whatever that means for them, in whatever context they are trying to deliver things, Yeah. <laughs> right? And so I think co-working has, uh, will have a big role to play in that, I think. And, so, and, and, and a lot of these people, what's interesting about it is a lot of these people have never looked at co-working before because they're, um, at least for us anyway, we were mainly home traditionally to business owners, entrepreneurs, freelancers, people that were you know, kind of already you know, writing their own story and doing their own thing. Um, and now we're seeing a lot of people that, you know, they're remote workers for a company that maybe used to have an office downtown. Right, they belong to a team. Um, yeah, but they're, they're going crazy in their condo and they need to get the hell out of there. So, oh, yeah. so it's, it, yeah, it's not, it's not a one size fits all, that's for sure. I mean, if that, if that wasn't obvious before, it's very obvious to me now that it's really just about looking at an individual's situation. Yeah. Um, maybe working at home all the time is great for you for whatever reason. Maybe working at home is the worst thing imaginable for you and you should not do that at all. <laughs> you know, like it, it, it totally, totally depends. And so, as I mentioned, we've been sort of trying some new things. So, um, you know, introducing what we're calling these flex memberships where you can, you can have the once a week or the twice a week package. If, you, if you're a side hustler and you have a full-time job but you just want to add weekends, you can do that. Mm -hmm. And um, some of the newer systems that we've, that the, the lockdown kind of gave us time to implement like the key C system that turns your phone into a key card for right. those that don't know, right. um, allows us to do these kinds of things. Cause now we can assign someone a package that says, give them access, you know, twice a week. So effectively eight day passes in a month, mm -hmm. they can show up. Yeah. And because it's all tracked via their phone, uh, you know, first of all, it's contactless. Second, we know who's coming and going when, uh, if someone runs out of their day passes, they can upgrade to the next package. If they, you know, decide month by month, they, I don't need as much access next month, you know, drop me down to once a week or whatever. All of this stuff is now possible. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be resonating with this group of people that just need to friggin' get out of the house once in a while. Right. They don't necessarily need an office or a full-time place. Right. Um, so yeah, that's been really interesting for us to try to play with. I mean, obviously business is down <laughs> overall, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. even with, with this new kind of wave of people we're seeing, things are still, slow and a little bit scary. Um, but uh, as entrepreneurs, we have to find the, the silver lining. And so we're excited about, about where things are going there. I think so. I think, of course, and this is something we were saying before, camp, uh, before we jumped on camera, before we jumped on stage, is that you know, the context for, uh, or the justification for people seeking out co-working solutions for, uh, as places for, for, to do their work I think the context has shifted leading up to the pandemic anyway. Um, 
for many reasons, uh, I would chastise you know, the uh, efficacy of WeWork's marketing campaigns globally um, because a lot of it has been you know, based on selling lies, but the culture that they picked up on through their marketing to propagate globally um, and the aesthetic of that culture as being a place where people can be creative, can be uh, together and enjoy that togetherness uh, is valid and is, is something that's you know, certainly an, a key ingredient in co-working. Um, so I think, <coughs> me. despite WeWork's, um, you know, any falseness that they may have had in their product, uh, in their marketing, in their business practice, and all that dramedy uh, that has ultimately led to, uh, you know, their downfall in many ways, uh, I think that they opened up uh, a lot of opportunity for the sector by mm -hmm. introducing co-working at this like ridiculously unsustainable budget for marketing. Yeah, yeah. Um, All of a sudden, everyone's heard of co-working. Exactly. Great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And what's very interesting, um, if, you're, if you're up for talking about it, I, I think it's very interesting to consider how, um, really in the last five years, the commercialization of the sector uh, mm. and the kind of participation in uh, the purveyance of co-working from all sorts of other groups, whether they're hospitality groups or real estate groups or even you know, REITs trying to figure out how to um, animate unused commercial real mm -hmm. estate. Uh, I think co-working as a sector has evolved and grown and, and I guess flexible workspace is a larger catch-all. Um, has so many players in it from different financial backing and different mm -hmm. financial justification. Um, I like the story of WeWork. I think it's an interesting cautionary tale. Uh, There's actually a great podcast series on it. Uh, it's called, I think, We, we Crash or We Crashed. Right. It's like five or six episodes worth checking out if you haven't, haven't we'll heard put it. A link. We'll put a link <laughs> on this. I haven't checked it out. I started, I started listening to it, and then I was like, this is going to be too demanding of it's my It's pretty time. well done, though. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, it, it is a crazy story. I mean... It's a crazy it's, story. <laughs> especially when you get into you know, hearing some of the nitty-gritty details, what was going on behind the scenes. It's, right. uh, it's kind of wild. And to think that you know, we started at... I'll say virtually the same time as them. Maybe they were. Maybe we're, we were a year behind or yeah, something. Yeah, same period. You know, they had two or three loca locations in New York around the same time. We were kind of one or two locations here. And then to just think about you know what happened next in both of those stories, uh, just kind of mind blowing. It sounds like it kind of fits the ethos a little bit of Project Spaces in terms of your uh, the cultural makeup of your community. But uh, something we've always been um, proud of at Startwell and something that in business practice wise that I've always been encouraging of, of new founders um, you know kind of chasing is an approach of bootstrapping that's not to say be cash limited and cash poor in how you approach a new business so that you can kind of triumph over evil for the sake of it but it's more like control your destiny mm -hmm. in line with your vision for what success is because the profile for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs I feel has been corrupted by mass media in the last few years and this kind of like corruption of, of, of Silicon Valley ethics, you know, and, and it's broadcast mm. onto this on a large stage. But the idea that like, you know, fake it till you make it, hustle, 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 make as much money as you can and like closing deals with VCs is the equivalent to like bringing in revenue in a lot of founders' minds. 
The so idea. It's just an amount of money you need to give back to them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. With interest. Yeah, it's pound, pounds of flesh have been cut and cut and cut. And I think people don't understand the business model of venture capital um, when they take money from mm -hmm. venture capital. Um, and that's a whole nother series uh, that we're producing here at Startwell. It's on uh, pyramid schemes in, uh, okay. in what seem to be kind of like um, founder-friendly environments. Uh, and, um, but bringing it back to co-working, I think is really interesting to look at the WeWork story because it's one of these examples of a, of a company that gets hyper-funded uh, with an infinite growth strategy that is not financially sustainable for even the core investors. So SoftBank poured a bunch of money into this company to accelerate its growth. And what's mind-blowing about the story for me and uh, anyone who's interested in startups is to say, okay, infinite scale might work conceptually with software where you don't necessarily have incremental you know, expenses along the path to sustaining scale or delivering to scale. As your customer base grows and you're a co-working company, you got to outlay so many millions of dollars to build out space and real estate. Leave aside the leasing costs, you know, and deposit structures yeah. and all of that. Well, that seems to be part of the a big part of the magic there, if you want to call it that. That, you know, they were pretty successful at convincing people that they were effectively a, a technology company. Yeah, and to that, and that they could, you know, sort of scale at the rate uh, and demand the, you know, valuations of a of a growing tech company. What I find is interesting about it is that there's so much to the WeWork story that is applaudable. You know, uh, I think in terms of the execution of the rollout of that new real estate, I feel like that is is amazing, and I want to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope that uh, someone's able to document those stories about like how did they actually technically, from an operational standpoint, turn on a new location that's like let's call it you know thirty to fifty thousand square feet or something every two weeks or something for a little while. It's, it's pretty wild. It's yeah. pretty amazing. And there's a lot of lessons <laughs> to learn there. But um, regardless, as I bring it back to this kind of like our owner operator table here, um, it's really fascinating to consider how companies in this space um, you know, can be funded. Because the margins can be good in an ideal market with the right mm -hmm. location and the right property uh, and the right marketing scheme. But fundamentally, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing, and this is what I'm calling co-working 2.0, but we're seeing, from my vantage, a divergence in the sector where um, you have a lot of kind of either venture-backed or high-financed uh, entrance into the flexible office space market. Um, and those products are typically coming on market to be quick and easy solutions for not necessarily culture, uh, companies that are agile by nature, but maybe by context. So I'm seeing a lot of uh, companies, even locally, like Kingset. You know, Kingset is a, is a commercial property group, um, essentially like reallocating you know, um, pension fund type money, like big money, mm -hmm. uh, private equity, let's say. It's a private equity real estate play. And they're saying, okay, well with the COVID situation, they had like floors and floors empty in their buildings. So, Brilliant. Let's create a product, all internal. It's going to be flexible office space. People can sign up for month-to-month -month leases. That's all they really want is something that looks funky and is, it's flexible on the pricing and the terms. And that will tick boxes for a lot of people. And that will be probably more sustainable as, from a landlord perspective in the long term because uh, they won't deal with as much churn of individual tenants and the legal costs of lease restructuring and stuff. Mm -hmm. 
but but all of a sudden they're in the business of managing a shared space, which, as you know, comes with countless specific challenges, right? right. I mean, if you're if you uh, are not up for being really really good at that, yeah, then that's going to be a huge pain. <laughs> and I think that that's the interesting thing about co-working that doesn't get talked about is um, as value-added property managers, and we're both mm -hmm. in these re redevelopment site properties where you know, the buildings need work. You're typically on a kind of net lease. So plumbing, electrical, everything's on your head. You know, anything that won't bring the building down, the landlord doesn't want to touch. Um, so it's both exciting as an operator, but also uh, restrictive to most people considering being an operator in this space. So mm -hmm. typical commercial landlording would require you to like hire a property management group to come in and they basically just liaise with like Otis and you know Sintas or whoever you're using to come in, keep your buildings clean, uh, keep them smelling fresh, and keep the elevator running. Um, but now I think the role that we've taken on as part of our operating um, guideline and the way that we run our businesses as owner-operators in co-working is to say, we're going to manage this property. We're going to animate it with a whole suite of smart technology to make us be able to run our business. And our business really is just about making that building work for more people in an individualistic way that still connects them. It's, it's so ahead of its game in calculating community through ease of access and through agility and making this physical thing kind of work a little bit more like software. So I think mm -hmm. that, like, that story definitely was distilled and marketed by WeWork, you know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But I do think that it's this value-added property model that costs a lot of money from an operator standpoint. Uh, and landlords will definitely figure that out as they try and do these ventures themselves that the upside gets eaten up um, just in OpEx. You know? um, which comes to this kind of thing of like, for me, as larger commercial interests are kind of uh, looking to co-working for clues on how to animate uh, commercial real estate, you know, I think there are a lot of lessons, like we were talking about these technologies, like a smart entry system, uh, you know, connected security systems, cameras that enter, uh, connect with your doors to take a picture of who walks in, send you a message on Slack, all the stuff that we're hacking together um, mm -hmm. enables us to be a little bit more autonomous in how we run the space and give freedom to its uh, occupants. Yeah. Well, and ultimately to operate in a, le in a, in a lean fashion. Well, that's the which, whole thing, Which right? is a yeah. huge element. I mean, we way back, you know, we, we described it. We were very, I'll say, raw and gritty, and we called it the founder-friendly approach. It right. means I'm not wasting money on a really expensive chair <laughs> because you don't want to have to pay for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like, I'm helping you. <laughs> right. Right. It's always about the, the rosy spin, right? Right. Um, but, but you know, th there's a very real impact there. Like, if, if we weren't able to use all these tools and kind of piece them together, as you described, we would need a lot of humans. Yeah. That's very expensive. That, in turn, would make a co-working membership cost way more to the, to the customer than it does. Right. So, I th so it's, thank God, <laughs> right? We get to play with all these tools and, um, you know, not need to have a, a human doing all of these things, as would have been the case, you know, probably even even just a couple of years ago. Right. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Agility is necessary for our business model. And again, it ties in with that whole OPEX being lean thing. Like you want to cut your OPEX as much as possible because especially like I'll tell you a little like anecdotally, 
on a net lease, if we have anything going wrong with our plumbing, you know, and I've got a random thousand, two thousand dollar bill to replace a toilet because its back flush system is unique or something, um, you know, I've got to replace a toilet. And that's on my head, and that's something that wasn't budgeted for. And if we budget for all the like danger zone things, um, I certainly can't have someone eating that budget with salary. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so lean and mean gives you that kind of embrace of technology that can automate space. Um, absolutely. And I, so I think that's really interesting that like, this is a common thread that I'm picking up as I'm talking to co-working operators, of course, as being one, you know, one that we've had to face is like, how do we maintain a mindset of agility? Um, and how does that interrelate with the culture of our customer? Mm -hmm. Right? And I think there's a symbiosis there, which, you know, a massive corporation doesn't necessarily um, think like that or have the agility uh, to make decisions in quick ways to implement technology. Like procurement mm -hmm. departments themselves for RIATs will limit their ability to implement the technology that we can even recommend them. Um, part of the co-working 2.0 uh, packaging for the series that I'm doing is going to open source the playbook of Startwell. So I'm okay. taking our whole tech stack, I'm taking our service stack, um, and I'm kind of liberating it in a Creative Commons license and publishing it online for anyone to be able to learn from. Because um, we've taken a, a series of meetings with, with landlords, uh, not just during this pandemic uh, lockdown scenario, but in recent years, in the last couple of years, saying, you know, people come to us and they say, how did you do what you do? Um, and I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I don't have time to consult with you, so I can't necessarily come into your space and, and do it, even if it's lucrative for me. Um, so finally, I took the time in the last couple of months to say, okay, I'm gonna document what we actually do mm. and give people the tools, because I think the nature of our work should not be reliant on competition it should instead be one that is welcoming of community in a real meta yeah. sense. It's not just about the people in this building or between our buildings. It's really about um, the industry and commercial real estate staying relevant. And I think that this is a big elephant in the room right now, right? Is with public opinion being a question mark on proximity, physical proximity, I'm anticipating for the next couple of years out, it's now October 2020, Nearly November, I'm anticipating at least until the end of 2022, you know, we're going to be dealing with um, a lot of uncertainty in terms of how urban populations in North America, and specifically in Canada and here in Toronto, um, choose to come together through daily life. Like, the way I see mm -hmm. it, this will have such lasting effects. However, I see co-working campuses that are, you know, really focus on amenity-rich experiences and community as being sanctuaries. So yeah. I think we're the new community center. You know, and for all the people that are unfortunately trapped in the confines of their house for 24 hours a day outside of being able to go to grocery shop or see grandma or don't see grandma <laughs> if it's not safe, everyone. Um, you know, people crave uh, social interaction and we're seeing that with our right now limited uh, member base where uh, the fewer people that are coming in are even more thankful to be able to focus, do their work, feel safe, feel comfortable, and have the opportunity 
to feel what, you know, to experience opportunity itself. So, I don't know, this is like yeah. a larger rant, but I have this whole thing where I don't believe that um, <clears throat> poverty is simply a financial state. I've always believed, and part of this is growing up in East Africa, but I've always believed that poverty is a mindset created by a lack of opportunity. When you don't feel there are any doors that you can open, you feel trapped in your life, you're poor. Opportunity affords you the ability to think expansively, to communicate with others in an open and free fashion, you know, and, and all of these other things. And I, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for our communities to come together you know, at mm -hmm. these places that we're building for them. Yeah, I feel like, I don't know where I'm stealing this from, but uh, you know, broke is a temporary financial situation, but poor is a mindset. Right, right. Um, yeah, agreed. Yep. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk uh, about the things that make people comfortable. From your list, what do Project Spaces members find comfort in? Well, um, I want to answer this well. <laughs> um, I think, you know, f for us, it's, it's, it's intangible, but we use this word all the time. It's, we have a vibe. We have a unique vibe. When you come in, someone says hi. You know, if it's your first week or your first month, we're going to be introducing you to people left, right, and center. Um, this is a very hard thing to scale, by the way, but, yeah. <laughs> but, it's, uh, <laughs> but it's kind of, you know, if I had to say sort of our secret sauce, it's that, like I said, people want to get out of the house. They want to actually meet people. And so we kind of, we make sure that that, that that happens. Like we, having done, been doing it for nine years now, I can think of so many anecdotal stories of people that have formed you know, lifelong friendships out of the space. People that neither of them are members anymore and haven't been for years, but I'll see them out at a bar, not in a few months, but you know. <laughs> you see uh, them out on a patio, yeah, yeah. separated by um, at least six feet. So you know, that's what I, when you ask me that, that that's kind of what I think about, is that there's a, there's a real, um, say authenticity to the connections that get made yeah and that's something we pride ourselves on um, in terms of the things that they look forward to um, enjoying while they're at work that you provide mm -hmm. um, what does project spaces provide for their members that they know that they can just trust will be there when they get to work sure so uh, well we're very serious about our caffeine as I know uh, as are you yeah uh, so we uh, you know, we grind our coffee beans fresh on site. We've got a huge. Oh wow, you do. Yeah, so we've got these big industrial grinders, oh, yeah. and we have. But we don't have the the Italian the espresso <laughs> machine. Um, but yeah, coffee. You know, really, really fresh, really great local coffee. We uh, loose leaf tea, sparkling water, all these types of kind of staples, right? Yeah. Um, we actually always have like music playing in the lounge, which I think is just a, is a big part of it. So it kind of creates. You know, our space is sort of a cross between like an office and a coffee shop and a social club a little bit. Right. Um, you know, in normal times, we're obviously very big on hosting events. And because it's, you know, it's, it's work hard and play hard. So it's, we'll do, you know, some educational and, uh, you know, help you with your business type stuff. But then we'll also just do, you know, whether it's member happy hours or we'll do every year, we'll do like a Jays game, um, you know, a mix of fun stuff and serious stuff. Um, that obviously you can you know, opt into as much as you want or, or don't want to on any given month, depending on how you know, busy you are or whatever. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the vibe, whatever that, whatever that means. <laughs> um, what infrastructure, technical infrastructure, uh, like internet and so on, 
do people, do you think if there's trends amongst your population or your, your community, mm -hmm. what technical infrastructure do people all look for to be able to do their work when they come to work at Project Spaces? Right, so we, um, being a very kind of like open, both in terms of sort of the, the, the feel, but also physically open space. Um, you, we're home to a lot of uh, what you might call digital nomads, right? So right. these are people that are used to basically working on their laptop, you know, jet setting around the world. Yeah, in, chilling in, on a beach, often, right? getting so, things done. So yeah, we, so, you know, the technical infrastructure is fairly, you know, it's, it's, it's all Wi-Fi based. Okay. So we don't do, I know that you were, you were showing me some, some crazy, uh, you know, Cat5 cabling and, oh, yeah. and stuff that you've Cat been five, running Cat5, Cat6 all over this place. Um, yeah. We do, I mean, we, on rare, on some occasion we've done that for people, but, but by and large it's a, it's a very simple kind of Wi-Fi setup. We use Meraki uh, as you do, and it's, yeah. it's a, another one of these tools that allows us to, you know, very easily manage things in the cloud and see what devices are on the network and troubleshoot things when we need to. Oh yeah, it's so um, helpful. Yeah, that was that was a real. It's it's hard to imagine the time before we were on that system. <laughs> I used to run around in the first year, no, first six months of Startwell, maybe a year. I literally used to run around and like reset routers all the time, and like unplug things and plug things, and then move something based on how many people are clustering in what part of the building. But I wouldn't know that until I walked around to see that, because I couldn't tell how many devices were connected to which piece of equipment. Yeah, wow, it's. Yeah, it was a big learning curve to try and define what uh, kind of network infrastructure yeah. we needed. People and really do underestimate what's required to power, you know, a network that, let's say, at any given time might have, you know, 200 devices on it. Yeah. Um, some doing really bandwidth-heavy things, lots of video conferencing. You know, it's it's really tricky. On average, we're seeing on campus, and this is like this is seasonally it changes a little bit, but. Uh, typically, we're looking at like six devices per person right. that are all connected, you yeah. know? Phones, tablets, laptops, desktops, a camera that might have Wi-Fi connection, you know, I don't know, some sort of Fitbit type thing. Like, people have the weirdest devices that they're plugged into their screens of it that are like, you know, an Apple TV, I don't know, like everything. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Like, and the expectation is that it just all works flawlessly all the time. What's very interesting about this is that these, the, the network infrastructure that um, I think we, we both enjoy, uh, that's a product suite from Meraki, from Cisco, um, you know, is really, it, yeah, it provides that agility, but it's truly enterprise technology. Um, and yet it's not used by a lot of enterprises that I know who use it right. in that way. Um, so it's interesting. It's like... How do we take the best, not just from like ghetto tech bootstrappy stuff, but even enterprise and say, wh what fits our purpose? Yeah. Um, and knowing our purpose and how people use the space, I think that knowledge base is what is so important in being able to procure these technologies with agility. So anyway, that's why I'm hoping to open source our stack because I think it'll really help a that's lot of people. Yeah. Um, the goal for us and for me is to be able to encourage like anyone who's responsible for facilities and operations from, you know, from a corporate level to a real estate manager level to anyone, anyone from a hotel to a co-working space just getting started to someone who's leased two floors of a building for their law firm and is the single IT manager to be able to say, okay, yeah. how can I take the best from 
these agile uh, co-working spaces that, you know, this for me anyway, the stuff that we had to learn uh, that, you know, along the way to create our suite of, of tools, that's not the secret sauce, right? You're talking about the vibe. Right. The vibe right. isn't the tech stack. And yet, in conventional kind of like enterprise economics, it's always the secret sauce. Um, so I'm very happy to be able to open source yeah. that stuff. That's cool. I look forward to reading that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, it'll be online soon. I feel like I, I wanted to jump on something you, you said earlier that, you know, you see co-working spaces being sort of these like modern temples of oh, yeah. the, the neighborhood and the community. And it, it made me think, and I, you know, maybe this is a bold statement, right? But it okay. almost feels like our industry has been getting ready for this moment. Like, like what is to come after, I don't know if, if it even makes sense to say after COVID or just whatever, when, whenever things are back to whatever they're going to become, whenever that is. Yeah. Uh, we're ready for this. You know, we've been getting ready for this. Right. You know, for us for nine years. You know, I feel like what the world is going to need, as you're saying, like everything is shifting and companies are getting rid of their large square footage, a lot of them with no intention to go back. And they're realizing that remote working, by and large, is working. Okay, great, right? Um, but it, as we've discussed, you know, it doesn't work for many people for many reasons. And so co-working spaces, I think, are, are set up to be this solution, right. this, this and it's almost new solution. But we're not new. We've been at it for a while. Yeah. Um, but now all these types of people who have never thought about why they might need a shared workspace are realizing or starting to realize why... Uh, you know, why it's been so popular among startups for so long, right? Oh, it's so true. Uh, and again, the network, the entire network or ecosystem around our business models um, is inquisitive of how our business model works. And again, it's not just about profit and the generation of profit. It's about um, just simply providing the products and services that we do to our members and having members feel part of a community at that place. Like, mm -hmm. again, that's the vibe, that's the secret sauce. It's about kind of how you stitch people together and stuff. Well, it's that a whole, you know, Simon Sinek, uh, they don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Right. right. You can find any, you know, any number of corking spaces in the city that have this uh, awesome tech stack and blah, 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 as you mentioned, right? Yeah. But it's like, why do you go there? And now I take a step <laughs> back and I look at society, I look at the pressures on society today, urban society specifically, uh, you know, sitting here, how many months are we? Seven months in North America into the pandemic. Um, and a lot of people are still looking for what a path to a return to normal looks like. And for us here mm -hmm. at Startwell, through all the content that we've been generating, all the conversations like this I've been having with people, um, all indications point towards every day being normal. You just have to see it right, that way, right? right. And Precisely. so uh, I, I think as this new, um, I would say like the new embrace of change takes effect on people and people on mass start welcoming the change that is a facet of life into their lives mm -hmm. um, they will certainly seek out experiences that our members enjoy every day um, and the retail landscape is changing dramatically right like unfortunately restaurants bars shops will close and unforeseen um, rates and and uh, and the extent of that detriment will be massive. Mm -hmm. um, and who's to say what the next steps will look like for the retail landscape of our cities and definitely of our neighborhood here in Toronto? I know 
Queen Street West, like you take a stroll and it, it feels like it's 30, 40% shut down. Who knows what winter will bring? Yeah, yeah. But for us here, I mean, I've been really focused on kind of this hybridization of space and how we can monetize it in multiple ways, but also give our members reasons to come to start well that enrich their lives, make their lives full of wellness, you know? And it's everything from caffeination and tea and hydration um, to community and interaction with other humans to, for us, um, even developing this relationship with a local uh, yoga studio called Downward Dog that moved from Queen Street to Ossington recently where we're taking their practice and we're working with them to digitize it in our innovation studio on Niagara Street um, creating an on-demand catalog that will be available to our members as just that's cool yeah, yeah. and we have in-person private yoga classes that's included in membership um, so I think the idea of like going to a place to belong to enrich your life and to have really a place I think the importance of that place even if it's a singular place in your life is going to become even more important to people uh, you know in coming months because yeah. You can't go to the four or five places that you used to. They well, and exist. This reminded me of something actually that my co-founder Jeff talks about a lot. And, um, we call it the, the new lifestyle stack. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, our parents' generation um, wanted to be in the suburbs, right? So we grew, I grew up, you know, in a you know, large place with, you know, you've got a big kitchen for entertaining guests. You might have a home office. You might have a home gym, yeah. right, in this, in this enclosed environment. Our generation wanted to migrate back to the cities. When you're in the city, you have way less square footage. You can't necessarily entertain at home, et cetera, et cetera. So you stack together a selection of effectively private member clubs, whether that's a working club, a social club, like say, you know, the Spoke House or the Soho, fitness clubs, yoga studio, spin class, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? right. To create this lifestyle, the lifestyle stack that you want, yeah. right? It's like a... It's like this quintessential element of being downtown. It's like yeah. you, you kind of have to think about what are the things you want to do. Chances are you can't do them at home. So wh you know where can you go? What's nearby? Um, yeah, to create the, the lifestyle that That's you want. That's it. And you know, co-working is going to be a huge part of that. I think. I think it's interesting, and uh, especially the way you describe it generationally. You know, it's fascinating because um, I think it plays in with this concept of work from home, right? You know, the, the horrible, unfortunate, simple, overly powerful branding in the last few months of stay home, stay home, stay home, stay home on the DVP, on the signs, like on the highways in Toronto. When I cruised around in the early months of the pandemic, that's all you'd see everywhere in the ghost town of the empty highway mm -hmm. is a sign telling you stay home, stay home, no justification, no explanation. And just like danger, danger. And it's a synonymity there. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, and the question becomes, well, yeah, home can't offer me what it did when I was a kid or what my baby boomer you know, parents had uh, in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. So, no, I, I want to stay safe, but I don't want to stay home because my home is distributed. My right. home exactly. isn't a yeah. box, you know? It's everything that the box gives me access to. Mm -hmm. So I, I totally concur, and I feel like the more that we can do as, um, you know, as and this is the way I look at it. Like we're not commercial real estate operators. We're not landlords or sub-landlords. Um, we are people who take waking life into our responsibility set and afford people literally access to a better life. 
you're spending your waking life for the most part five days out of seven, maybe for early stage founders, seven out of seven with us, and you go home to sleep, mm -hmm. you're living at Startwell. You're living at Project Spaces. So I think that that's a very enriching experience that we afford people because we know of its impact. We know how important it will be also in the, not just the career trajectory, but uh, the long-standing life that we hope our members you know, flourish yeah. in. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. It's like, life is short, and I think that's why people like us get up every day and, and keep doing it because I, you know, I love to be around the energy of people who are spending that time doing something they really love. Absolutely. Whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if we, can, if we can be a part of that journey by creating a space that they can come into and be productive and be happy and make friends and all of that, it's uh, what, what more could you want? Exactly. <laughs> Agreed. It was, uh, it was definitely a pleasure spending time to kind of work through some of these thoughts, uh, explain to our audience a little bit about our individual approaches to co-working, where we see things going, the relevance of co-working in Toronto, and uh, hypothesize a bit about you know, what the future looks like. Um, and uh, thanks very much for joining it's me. my pleasure, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Um, for anyone looking for more information about you and Jeff and what the work that you're doing at Project Spaces and how they can you know, come check out your space, uh, what uh, links can you drop? So um, typically I direct people to our Instagram, actually. It's a really good, great way to kind of get a vibe for the spaces in the community. So yeah. just at Project Spaces, correctly spelled. And uh, if you're interested to learn more, there'll be a link there. Awesome. Yeah, we'll put something at the bottom of the screen. Cool. Once again, thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.